They got pizza over there. All right, everybody, welcome to the Super House Podcast. We have a very special guest this week. Ben's here as usual. Hello, hello. <laughs> and uh, Ben, you ha- you actually uh, got the uh, connection for this guest, so why don't you introduce yes. him? So, as a very special guest, and to wrap up our series covering this month's movie on Batman Forever, we have the original screenwriters of Batman Forever, Lee and Janet Scott Batchelor. Hello, everybody. Hello. <laughs> hello. So, uh, we, let's see, about 10 years ago or so, I was a screenwriting student over at USC, and I found out that uh, Janet was teaching over there, and I reached out to her and asked to, like, ask some questions about the movie. I also had her autograph my poster of the movie, which, by the way, is hanging up in my living room still. I saw that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Andrew saw that at my birthday party. Yeah. Um, and uh, we kept in touch, and now... You know, many years later, it's like, okay, well, now I'm covering this movie on the podcast. It would feel wrong for me not to at least reach out and see if uh, she and Lee would be down to talk again. I'm sure there's going to be some overlap with what we already talked about, but again, that was like a decade ago. I'm sure (laughs) part of me may have forgotten some of the answers on these anyway. Yes. (laughs) Well, 20 years ago, I saw the movie in the theater. (laughs) Right. And uh, (laughs) holy crap, this is wild actually talking to you guys. Thank you, Ben, for hooking this up. Of course, yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm originally from Alabama and Georgia, and I was just a kid in Alabama at the time in 95 that saw this movie. And, uh, yeah, it's it's great to be able to to talk with you guys. Mm Mm-hmm. So the first question we had uh, was uh, before you know getting hired on it. What was your guys' history with uh, Batman character or comics? Um, you know, I read. I wasn't allowed to read comics at home. Uh, I was, you know, raised in a house where that was not acceptable. But every week, my mom would take me grocery shopping and let me sneak off to the little newsstand section of the store where there were comic books. And so I spent about an hour every week devouring the comic books. And uh, I fell in love with Batman very quickly, in part because with the limited selection that was there, um, I didn't really see anybody that I could relate to. They didn't have Wonder Woman. I wasn't really interested in Archie. That was pretty much all that was available but I had a couple of friends who were girls named Robin and so I was like well maybe I couldn't be Batman but maybe I could be Robin maybe a girl could be Robin because it's really a girl's name and so that was sort of the way I found my way in and found my way able to relate to uh, those comic books which I just devoured i didn't miss anything for years and years you know sitting as a little girl you know on the floor in this little corner of the local store uh reading that week's comic books and and i grew up in uh, san diego um i had a single mother raised raised me and i had such a comic book collection i was all all dc uh stuff um, oh, awesome um and my mom felt that my devotion to 
this many comics was an unhealthy thing. So uh, in my, I think I can relate. about 12, 12 or 13, she made me get rid of all of them. And I like now could cry over the additions of, uh, of things that I had, you know, first of, or, you know, early, but it'd be worth a lot of money these days. Oh you know? man. Since Comic-Con, like, Oh, I could have sold this for you know, hundreds of dollars. So yeah, you have trauma in childhood and you just try to <laughs> right. use it, channel it through your art. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Okay. So, uh, yes, you guys teamed up on uh, scripts, and uh, I understand that uh, it was Smoke and Mirrors that led to you getting hired for this film. We wrote a movie called Smoke and Mirrors. It was a spec script. We wrote it during the spec script boom of the 90s. Uh, spec script um, is one that you write hoping that somebody will buy it. Uh, you write it for free, and... You want to sort of make your name with with a spec script and, and get some attention. And we had sat down with our writers group and said we wanted to to write a movie that would get us attention. That we went we through a we lot were, of. Like, we felt we were really good writers at this point. Nobody knows who we are. Yeah, we have to find a really great story that we can make a splash with. But it had to be a really great story because you know a, a, a refined. Uh, view of a, a execution of a so-so story is still a so-so story, but a great story can get attention. So mm -hmm. Smoke and Mirrors was a story about, uh, based on the the true life exploits of one of the early pioneers of stage magic, Jean-Eugène Robert Houdin, um, and particularly looking at an episode when he went to North Africa to expose some local sorcerer, sorcerers there as frauds because they were claiming to be gods and manipulating the people because they could do magic. Mm -hmm. And so we wrote a big splashy movie that in fact did get a lot of attention. And there was a bidding war um, quick during the course of a week uh, between Disney and Warner Brothers. Uh, Disney ended up winning that bidding war. The movie actually has been in pre-production and fallen out twice, uh, fell out yeah. once because Sean Connery got sick and they weren't able to make the movie. And it fell out the Damn. second time because of 9-11, because they were going to be shooting in Morocco, uh, in Morocco and they could no longer get insurance oh, to geez. shoot oh, in uh, a primarily Muslim country after 9-11. Um, so, wow. so that never got made, but it got us a lot of attention. And because Warner Brothers lost that bidding war, they ended up sort of offering us a lot of things that they owned. And we perhaps rather naively kept saying, I don't know if we're really right for that <laughs> and passing on, on <laughs> things. Oh, um, so we passed on the Lone Ranger. Uh, oh, passed on, on Lethal Weapon 4. Lethal Weapon 4. Passed on Wild Wild West, thank God. <laughs> oh, yeah. right. Okay. right. Bullet yeah. dodge. Yeah, yeah. Um, and finally, they came back to our agent. Um, and I, you know, it's the power of no. We weren't trying to play hard to get, we weren't playing games with them. But because we kept saying no, uh, they kept raising the ante. Mm -hmm. uh, and they finally came back to our, uh, our agent and said, we are offering you Warner Brothers' most important asset, was how they presented it. Wow. Um, and True. when they presented it, 
the exact same language to Joel Schumacher. He said, you're offering me Mel Gibson? (laughs) 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 So so it shows you how things change over time. But that, of course, was was the Batman franchise. And we sort of felt at this point, they're offering us Batman. We cannot say no. We will never work for Warner Brothers again if we turn this down. Right. And of course, it was something we felt we understood. And it and it was like, yes, this is one we can do. Thank you for offering us one that's right. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, I understand then that uh, you had some meetings with Tim Burton. We did. Yes. Initially, um, you know, Tim Tim was uh, – he had other other things. He was, he was, he was working on Nightmare Before Christmas. He was sort of handing off the franchise to uh, Joel, and he was sort of the designated both the studio and Tim to, to hand, hand the baton off to. So mm-hmm. we had to meet with him and, and sort of please him that we weren't going to go too far astray from what he had begun because he sort of laid the foundation for this. Right. Yeah. So we we had a phone conversation with him. We had some meetings with him. I think what really clicked because we heard sort of his vision and where he wanted to see things go. And we had talked to Joel and heard his vision. And then it was our turn to come back with a take that everybody would sign off on. And uh, we came back and we basically talked about how, you know, that the, the, the heart of Batman is duality that in Superman, well, Superman has a double identity, but everybody else is one person. Lois Lane is always Lois Lane. Lex Luthor is always Lex Luthor. But in Batman, everybody, except maybe Alfred, has, yeah, everybody has a double identity. And so we, we started off with that um, and said, you know, we feel that Batman is about duality and tim just said yes <laughs> and that Perfect. was really the moment at which we knew that we had the job mm-hmm. when you said that uh what's his name schumacher told you his vision what did he say his vision was joel uh i have to understand a little bit about his background because he's he's a visualist he started out as a designer mm-hmm. he started out as a costume designer as a production designer and then got into directing so he's very much about the cinema of it, about the, the image on, on screen. So he's, he, you know, the vibrant colors of the 30s. I mean, there's very uh, different eras of different Batmans. Right. And, and there was an era in the 30s and the 40s that was extremely pop-up, pop-out colors. And uh, he sort of envisioned a living comic book on screen. Okay. Yeah, that was what he was looking for. Lots of color, mm-hmm. lots of movement, um, and and very much taking it back to the original Bob Kane uh, comic books. Gotcha. Uh, were there any notable things that Burton said when uh, you guys were meeting with him on his vision? Um, no, he was. He's a very gentle, um, erudite man. He's just he's he's quiet. He seemed a little shy. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, this is what I think makes him a great artist is there's, I think, a lot of, and this is true for a lot of directors, that they're a child at heart. You know, actors often, you know, have to tap into their 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 childhood imaginations and they sort of just let it out without all of the inhibitions that being a grown-up puts on you. And mm-hmm. Tim sort of 
is kind of like that. He's full of enthusiasm and uh, there's a childlike quality in the very best sense uh, mm-hmm. that I think comes out in his in all of his work. Right. And I think Joel has that to a certain extent, too, although he's he's it uh, manifests itself. Different, it manifests different. itself <laughs> yes. diff- differently because um, he's he's a New Yorker and he's just like a more cosmopolitan guy. Mm-hmm. OK, gotcha. Awesome. Uh, so what then led to the, uh, I guess, the decision to do the two villains? We have Two-Face and, and Riddler in here. Did they originate from Burton, from Schumacher, from you guys? Where did these come from? Um, we had uh, had to face the problem that I think all of the Batman movies that, uh, that Tim had, which which is having two... Well, just two, Batman Returns. Batman Returns. Well, <laughs> right. Yeah. It's it's the too many villains problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've only got a limited amount of screen real estate, and how do you do service justice to multiple multiple characters? So our solution was okay. Let's try to turn this into an asset. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To- so uh, so it came initially. It came down from the studio. The studio wanted two villains again. That was a given. We were not going to get to debate that. The studio had already decided that. Um, and Joel had already decided he wanted Harvey Dent, Harvey Two-Face, to be mm-hmm. one of those villains. He wanted uh, Tommy Lee Jones. To and he, Yeah, he'd already talked to Tommy Lee Jones about it, even though there was no story even to talk about. <laughs> right. so, so that was already <laughs> sort of handed to us. Um, as as a given, and they said, "What other what other uh, villains do you think would be fun?" And so they put that in our lap, uh, and we thought back to you know, this was we were really new uh, into the reinvention of Batman uh, because Tim Burton's Batman movie really was the resurrection of the character on any size screen after a very, very long time. And the one that most people were going to be familiar with was the Adam West Batman from the TV show, which was still available on TV here and there uh, in syndication. And so we sort of thought about let's limit ourselves to those villains because they're going to be the ones that uh, the audience will be familiar with where some of the more uh, esoteric or short-lived villains of the comic books just aren't going to play or they're just not going to be right for the kind of living comic book, big technicolor kind of movie that Joel wants to make. At that point, uh, in the comic books, Batman was dealing with Bane, and mm-hmm. it just was really clear that that was not going to play on the big screen <laughs> in the in the Batman world that we were inheriting from Tim Burton. Mm-hmm. So with that, we chose the Riddler, and there was virtually no discussion of it. Basically, they're like, great, let's do the Riddler. What do you <laughs> think about Robin Williams? And we're like, we like Robin Williams. <laughs> right. And that was pretty much the discussion. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, a curious thing, we've, we, uh, we hadn't really researched this, but it turned out that, um, that in the comic books, there was no actual origin story for the Riddler. We wound up creating one. Right. We thought we were just making our own version. Turned out there actually had never been an actual 
uh, Edward Nygma becomes the Riddler story in the comics. Mm-hmm. He just appeared sort of fully full, formed, full, full fledged. Yeah. Right. So, so we, so that was fun. Now uh, back to the <laughs> back to the two uh, to the built two villain problem. Um, what we decided in terms of so let's make uh, lemonade out of lemons is that okay, uh, we have to have two villains, but we've got a main character who has two identities. So let's make one of the villains Batman's enemy and make the other other one Bruce Wayne's enemy. And that's how we structured the, uh, the, the movie. And then they, they eventually come together, but we started them out as, uh, you know, the Riddler has a beef with Bruce Wayne. Right. Right. Yeah, I think uh, I was telling Andrew this in a previous episode. We haven't we haven't released it yet, but uh, that what I appreciate about this version of the Riddler is there's an actual explanation for uh, why he dresses up in the costume. Because as you guys says in the comics, like he just kind of shows up. He's randomly in a mask and a suit, and he doesn't really have much of a dual identity. Everybody knows that the Riddler is Edward Digma. He doesn't really have a reason. But the reinvention that you guys did, he has. A, he actually has a dual identity. He does the whole mimicking of Bruce Wayne of having a public persona as Nigma, while when he goes out at night, dresses up in green and everything, and nobody knows it's him. And there's an actual like reason for it. So I really appreciate that that side of it because I don't think there's any other version that uh, that actually explains it. I was really surprised by that because this was really my first introduction to the Riddler, really, because I don't think I had seen him in an episode of the animated series, and I didn't watch a whole lot of the Adam West show growing up, So, and it seemed like the comic book world really wants to explain everything. Mm-hmm. So I was, surprised, I was actually really su- shocked that he didn't have an origin story until this time. Right. We yeah. were surprised, too. <laughs> right. <laughs> we, we, we really were. We kept, because we kept going back to the early comic books. We bought, you know, bound collections of all the originals, and just read through them and tried to find even details that didn't make it into the movie, but details about the Batcave that we were trying to work in to honor sort of that era of Batman. And we kept saying, you know, where's essentially Riddler number one? Where, where is it? Um, So we were, we were shocked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, another another motivation we we sort of tapped into was thinking why why is that why is the Riddler so against Bruce Wayne? And we just thought about you know all of the celebrity stockings that you know go go on even to even today, and that the you know crazed fans, and of course the root root of the word fanatic is kind of fan. I don't know which mm-hmm. which way the direction the the words go, but they are related. So. So we, we thought, okay, here's this guy who works for Wayne Enterprises, and he's a fan of Bruce Wayne. This is the guy is hero. And then when you get disenchanted, that's when it, the turn comes. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's a powerful scene, as well as the fact that uh, I always like the idea that uh, Bruce Wayne sort of creates the Riddler by ignoring him and favoring the Bat signal, sort of favoring the Batman side. Of the, right, right, right. Uh, again, there's no version yeah, of the Riddler's origin that's like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you guys went through a lot of comic research to sort of find uh, some explanation of Riddler and everything. What other uh, comics did you guys end up uh, reading? We really mostly dived into Batman. We also read a bunch of, oh, we still have some of it somewhere. We, we read a bunch of 
um, essays. essays and psychological interpretations of Batman, a lot of academic stuff mm-hmm. about about Batman to sort of see what are we missing that we can work into this. And then to complicate things, um, we were also told that they wanted to introduce Robin. So now right. we have even more characters <laughs> to service. Right. Mm-hmm. So that that was we, we were juggling a lot of uh, a lot of characters in limited screen space. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I was I was telling Andrew earlier. I remember you telling me that uh, the reason why Robin had a bigger family in the movie was actually due to your research into like circus families and circus acrobats, and and that they they wouldn't just have just the parents and the kid. There would actually be a, a bigger family, more than one kid. Yeah, like the flying Wallendas. Yeah, or at, at the time, our assistant was somebody who had grown up in the circus. She never went to actual school. She grew up in the circus. She was, in fact, the uh, physical model for Circus Barbie, and she became wow. a stunt woman. <laughs> um, she was. Uh, we go see her performance with uh, L.A. Circus, uh, riding tie the elephant and doing tricks. Yeah, tricks, and she was an aerialist. She was an aerialist and. And her father was a very well-known elephant trainer. And so we had sort of insight into the world of the circus. And we were able to talk to her about what it was like. And, and you know, what, what, what were the tricks that Robin and his family would have been doing? And, you know, these, these families do work together and teach one another. And, you know, she learned from her mother, who was an aerialist. And... Mm-hmm. and so, so we we drew a lot from that. Gotcha. Yeah, uh, yeah. As I, was, as I was describing to Andrew, just like it does actually end up making a lot more sense in a way in terms of what you typically see with with circuses uh, and everything. So that definitely that definitely comes together. With the uh, other research, I did notice um, uh, that there's kind of an influence of the Dark Knight Returns in terms of this idea that uh, Bruce fell into the cave. And I, I did read a draft where, um, I don't know if this was you guys or Akiva Goldsman, where Batman kind of actually says some of the dialogue from Dark Knight Returns uh, in terms of describing the bat that comes for him and everything. Was that one of the influences too? That, a lot of that I think is actually Joel. He, he, oh, really? uh, he sort of, he, there's certain parts of the movie where he's sort of like, here's what I, here's what I want. And uh-huh. I wanted a, a scene where, where, uh, uh, the young young uh, Bruce falls down uh, through through the ground and discovers the Batcave. He sort of even des- described how how he wanted it. So that was our job is to put it on screen. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I also remember in uh, some in the same script um, that I think uh, Janet, you told me this was Joel's idea, where uh, in one of the original drafts, uh, Riddler kind of gets his costume from a fortune telling leprechaun at the circus. Was yes, it Joel's idea? That yeah. was also that was also Joel's idea. That's sort of the big kind of the kind of big purely visual yeah. um idea that, that Joel was going to come up with. Hey everybody, it's Andrew. I just wanted to tell you about our friend Israel's retro gaming shop. 
RetroCo. If you go to retro-ko.com, you'll be able to see all of his retro gaming goodies. If you wanted to get that Sega Saturn hidden gem from back in the day, or if you wanted to get the Famicom disc system that you never got as a kid, or any other type of retro game that you were into, or uh, import game, please go to RetroCo.com. That's Retro-KO.com. And if you use the Superhouse code Johnson's Ballsack, you'll be able to get a little bit of a discount at checkout. So please, once again, if you could just go to RetroCo.com, you can also go to Facebook.com slash RetroCo with no hyphen. That's R-E-T-R-O-K-O. You'll be able to find him on Facebook as well. If you were looking for that PlayStation import game that you never got, if you were looking for that Mega Drive game that you never got, or any other kind of retro game, any import game, it could even be European. Israel also curates bundles at RetroCo, and he'll curate that bundle just for you. So please, go check him out. If you put in the code Johnson's Ballsack at checkout, you'll receive a Superhouse discount. He also, I mean, he basically at one point said, I want to see Batman run through a wall of flame. <laughs> wall of fire. A wall of fire. And it was like, I don't care how you get it. I don't care sort of what, what leads up to it. I want the visual of Batman running through a wall of Just fire. Give me that shot. And, got and, and you can do what you want to give me that shot. So you know, we have to <laughs> wow. sit down and say, okay, wall of fire. How are we going to do that? And it is a great, great shot. Oh, yeah. It is one of my favorite shots of Batman in the whole movie. Yeah. 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 And in fact, what was interesting was we got to talk to the stuntman um, at, about his job. We were like, you know, you're really Batman, aren't you? And he's like, yes, I am. He's <laughs> <laughs> right. like, Val Kilmer is Bruce Wayne, but I. And Batman, which was sort of interesting. Um, yeah, but we sort of asked, what do you like? What do you hate? And he hated the cape. The cape weighed 40 pounds. Oh. He hated the cape. But he said, except for the fire scene, because he ends up taking shelter under the, the cape. And they actually burned over him with oh. fire. Wow, that was real. They had a special flame-retardant cape for that yes, shot. Yes, for that shot. But he said that was the moment where he was very glad. <laughs> the so the that uh, flame-retardant cape is actually a real-life thing. Yeah, it's a real-life thing. CGI. Yes. Uh, one of the questions I had when it came to going back to the Riddler um, is uh, we were kind of discussing, in one of the drafts I read, he was originally named uh, Lyle Heckendorf. Was this from you guys? Is this because, like, did Nigma seem, like, too out there? Or was this before you found Nigma? Like, where does this, where did Lyle come from? We, we, we thought he was just a, a, an ordinary guy. And, sort of, Edward Nigma actually sounds, sounds like a made-up name to, to yeah. go with the, uh, with the persona of the, of the Riddler, mm-hmm. uh, E. Nigma. Mm-hmm. Um, so we just, you know, we gave him uh, that name because sort he's of a doofus name, doofus yeah. work, working working guy in, in the lab. And Mad Magazine actually somehow stole a script, and they they did a spoof of of uh, Batman Forever before it came out, and they used the Lyle Heckendorf. So I said, okay, 
you guys at Mad Magazine, you're using a stolen script because by it, oh, eventually it, cha- it changed. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It, like it probably didn't draft. make sense to the public who didn't know where this Lyle name it came might from. Have even, might yeah. have even been in from from the uh, from the treatment. We wrote a 33 page treatment oh, wow. before we okay. wrote the script. Yeah. It just came out of your need to create an origin story for Riddler. Basically, mm-hmm. it's like when you needed a name before. Okay, I got you. Right, because yeah. he's a he's a, as they said, like it's tough to to come up with an origin for him when in the comics it's basically like, oh, I want to challenge the police and leave riddles. It's not an right. origin. Right, right, right. Uh, another creation you guys did was uh, Chase Meridian. Yes. Mm-hmm. So uh, I w- I was explaining to Andrew that there's an actual um, from what I remember you telling me, Janet, there's a significance to the name in terms of how it deals with his duality. Well, Meridian, of course, is is the line that divides. Uh, two pieces of a map in half. Mm -hmm. And so that was uh, her role in the movie is to uh, connect the two sides, the seemingly unconnected sides Mm -hmm. of Batman and Bruce Wayne. Uh, Let's face it, both sides of this person are really rather in need of some psychological help. (laughs) And yet, And yet, if Bruce ever really gets the psychological help he needs, he probably can't be Batman anymore. Mm -hmm. So there's a dilemma even in the idea of him seeking help. uh, Because is he abandoning his destiny and abandoning what he was meant to be if he gets healed himself? So we thought that, you know, they wanted a love interest. Uh, We knew that we couldn't even begin to compete with Michelle Pfeiffer as Catwoman. Uh, and uh, we thought, they decided they didn't, weren't going to bring back Vicky Vale, and they weren't going to bring back Vicky Vale. So we thought, you know, a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. Let's give him a psychiatrist, especially if we're if we're keying in on the dichotomy between Bruce and Batman, and how unsettled he is of, of yes. living that dual life. Mm-hmm. Let's give him a psychiatrist as a love interest, someone who can see through that. And the name Chase. Uh, came from when I was growing growing up uh, uh, in his later dancing uh, days. Uh, Fred Astaire had done some television specials with a, his young, very young uh, dance partner at that time. I was named Barry Chase, and wow. I just loved loved the name Chase. I thought, what mm-hmm. a great first name! That's awesome. I also figured that it was because he he's sort of chasing the balance or chasing the middle in a way. Yeah, I mean, I think it's sort of we we went there, mm-hmm. um, but the name came first actually mm-hmm. before the uh, before the, the any meanings attached to them. Oh, gotcha. Okay. <laughs> Sometimes when you're it's when just... you're naming characters in movies, it's 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 an instinct thing. Something sounds good, sounds right, mm-hmm. you know. And another name like oh, that doesn't uh, that's not that person. Let's try something else. Right. So you hit on something that just has the right music. Mm-hmm. We felt uh, that had music. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I was telling Andrew that I, I, I'm surprised that uh, there wasn't already a psychiatrist love interest character before you guys came up it's with surprising. one. It's surprising. Yeah. It really is. It's, it seems like yeah. such a natural thing to, to add to it. Um, I did read uh, a comic that incorporated Chase Meridian. I don't know if you guys have read this one, but uh, it's by Mark Gubenkheim. It's from an arc called Legends of the Dark Knight. That ha- it, She doesn't look like Nicole Kidman, but it is uh, the, the same type of character is used. Oh, we'll have to check that out. Yeah, she couldn't look like Nicole Kidman because 
uh, they don't they have, the have permission to use her right. likeness. Right. Yeah. That's what I yeah. figured. Yeah. Uh, let's I actually see. had a question real quick. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you guys write as a team, I assume, correct? Yes. Uh, so can you describe your dynamic as a writing team? I, I'm, I'm sure you've been asked this before, but like, what kind of stuff do do, do each of you cover? Uh, do you have some, you know, uh, strengths and weaknesses that you play off of each other, or or what? Yeah, we really do. Um, you know, it it just sort of fell into place that the things that Lee is stronger at are the things that I'm weaker at and vice versa. Um, so we tend to better structuralist. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I sort of understand structure in a, a very primal way. Um, but I tend to be maybe less than precise where dialogue is concerned. Um, so, mm -hmm. so it's sort of a yin and yang where we, we sort of, uh, fill the gaps that the other person has. Um, we tend to beat story out really, really um, deeply and get a lot of story work done before we start writing. And then generally we rewrite each other. Sometimes what ends up happening when we're uh, under the gun time-wise is that we'll divide a script and sort of sign up for scenes. You take these scenes like, one of us might write an entire storyline um, and then we start patching the pieces together. We had very, very little time to work with Batman. So we were just um, turning out pages, handing them to each other, rewriting them, turning out more pages, rewriting them um, as fast as we could. Okay. But your but dialogue is not necessarily your strong suit. Not as strong. Not as, mine. Uh, Lee is okay. a stronger dialogue. Yeah, I'm a stronger you. editor. He's a he he does sort of an overwritten first draft, and then I edit it <laughs> way down. <laughs> um, oh, I, I I overwrite uh, kind of like Aaron Sorkin. You just like the words just flow out, flow out, flow out, and okay, and Jan will find. Okay, let's throw that out. Throw that out. Like, here's, here's some gold. Here's some. It's like here's the line that we really need. <laughs> and everything else can go. Right. Um, so, so that's sort of how how it works. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. I'm the free spirit. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Uh, I was wondering because we have been sort of revisiting the '90s movies, and it struck us that in the Tim Burton movies, uh, Batman doesn't actually have that big of a role. Yeah. In those yeah. movies, and there was a clear sense in reading the original scripts and seeing even in the final film there's a sense of trying to refocus it back on the main character. So I imagine that was intentional on your guys' part. Yeah. Well, in, in the very first Batman movie, Jack Nicholson was such a powerful presence and as a powerful actor mm -hmm. that he sort of, you know, takes up a lot of the oxygen just by sort of the sheer power of, of him as a performer. So I think that that's sort of the, the writing probably gravitated to let's, let Jack be Jack to mm -hmm. the maximum extent at the expense of probably some of the other characterizations. <laughs> right, right. I could see that. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, because it, we sort of considered, after watching the performances, it was just like, well, you know, we did, we first saw Michael Keaton. Well, Keaton was, you know, my first Batman. I think it was Andrew's first Batman. Yes. Uh, you know, we love his performance, but Kilmer has the better characterization. In, in the I, script, really in like, I really yeah. like his his uh, characterization. I thought mm -hmm. it just was much more thoughtful and real. Actually, this this brings to the next question on the on the script. Actually, Ben, right? Uh, 
what you is got? there so I'm sure there's some things that you thought could have been better with the movie, but what do you think actually turned out a lot better than you imagined would would be when you saw the final film? Um, well, I think it comes down to, to the cat the casting, and, and maybe we're going to get into this uh, late later, but. Uh, the original casting was to, was to be for Michael Keaton, and mm-hmm. the original casting was to be for Robin Williams. And maybe we'll come come back to this as to why those those changes. But when Jim Carrey was cast, there's a part of me that sort of when I went into the movie to, to the premiere just to see it, I was like, there's a part of me like hoping, still hoping uh, I'd, I'd seen Robin Williams' performance in my mind. You know, mm-hmm. saying those lines and then to have Jim Carrey say some of those same lines and deliver it as good or even better than I imagined Robin and in a completely different way than yes. we had imagined that was a like delightful surprise <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah okay all yeah. right mm-hmm. it actually is think... really sorry go ahead oh go ahead please oh no it's just when I I, I after hearing that Robin Williams was the original actor you know, and reading the scripts and dialogue it's still really hard for me to not envision Jim Carrey's delivery of everything. Yeah. It's just so ingrained in me. Well, you know, it's so trite to say he made it his own, but <laughs> he truly, truly did. Mm-hmm. He truly did. There were there were moments that, you know, I knew every line in the script, and there were moments where he surprised me. <laughs> awesome. Uh, is there, I guess, anything from your original ideas, original scripts that uh, you wish made it into the final film? Um... That's that's a that's a tough one because uh, the uh, the uh, original story that we wrote was uh, Robin Williams' character was much more verbose, obviously, because we were writing for his uh, comedic I won't call it a shtick his his style of you mm-hmm. know tat uh, d- delivery. There was a lot more more of that, and that got thinned out. In, in, in the rewrites and in the in the production and with the recasting, um, so there's some of that that didn't make it into the movie because the movie got a little leaner. And mm-hmm. I think Akiva did did some very good work there in terms of thinning out because he's a very good craftsman at that. Um, but the essence of the story was pretty much there. Um, we tell our friends, "Don't ask us about uh, how Batman got up got up." Got down and the Batmobile went up the side of the building. Yeah, it's <laughs> like, no, nope, yeah, so we wouldn't have some, done that. There's some little detours in the movie that it took that we're, we didn't really have anything to do with. But the all the important beats of the movie that we wrote uh, was there. And uh, the editor, Dennis Verkler, uh, we, we talked with him on the, on the lot during the shooting. Uh, and he, he, he was very, very gracious to us. He said, you know, I'm... We're, I'm, I'm, I'm looking out for you guys. And he really did keep the essence of what, what, what we wrote on, on screen. And, and so very little of our stuff wound up on the cutting room floor. Were you able to see dailies or were you on set ever? Yeah, we were on set several times. Uh, we didn't see dailies. Okay. Um, I don't think that that's something that writers would I expect. Saw one, I saw one set of dailies. dailies. You I did saw- I think I, I went. Oh, did you go? Yes, and I didn't I, yes. go. Okay. So one set of dailies. Okay, uh, but we were there for the we were there for the scenes that were shot at the Pantages Theater, uh, which was the big the the uh, introduction of the box. 
Um, uh, ah, that's Barrymore a Pantages. Yes, that was shot in the lobby of the Pantages. Wow. So okay. look at it the next time. It, <laughs> I will. Yeah. yeah. And then we, the spru- the we went down to the Spruce Goose Hangar. They shot a lot of stuff down at the Spruce Goose Hangar in Long Beach. Next to the Queen. And we went down and, uh, and we were on set uh, down there as well for several of those shots. Yeah, I went down scenes. into the Batcave and I said, this is what I want for my office. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, because that's where they built the Batcave. So we got to be there for for a fair amount of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned that there were some bits about the Batcave that you had in the, that you originally were trying to explain or anything. I wanted to go back to that since you just mentioned the Batcave and I was reminded of that. Oh, you know, we had, we had, there were some things in the Batcave that we had pulled from the uh, the comics that didn't make it in your know, that giant Lincoln's head penny. Yeah. Uh, oh. You know, we were always like, "What is that giant penny doing there?" <laughs> uh, uh, you know, and we sort of thrown some of that stuff in as sort of Easter egg homages to the comic book fans, and the look just was. I mean, you can sort of see the look wouldn't tolerate that kind of thing in the Batcave. Um, so sort of the bright colors, the neon, mm-hmm. um, you know, the 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 wild canted angles and so on are really more above ground. And the Batcave becomes almost monochromatic uh, in the design. Gotcha. So it was originally just like an Easter egg or did was there a story explanation for it? it was, was no, we never found a story explanation. Just, <laughs> okay. We were trying to, to put those little details in. They ended up getting uh, cut out. Um, but I think Barbara Ling did a wonderful job with the production design. Mm-hmm. We are crossing our fingers for her to be Good nominated knowledge. and win for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood oh, uh, nice. next wow. year. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so, she did a great job on that. Yeah. I still want to see a Batman movie, though, with a Batcave with a giant penny and the yeah. T Rex robot. Yeah. <laughs> they need to explain it, but let's hope I'd still Matt like Reeves has some of that in there. <laughs> we'll see. Uh, after the movie, it, it's funny because I'm going to do, uh, I, I cover a lot of the scripts that weren't made or the original scripts and everything. And one of those was a script called Batman Dark Knight by Lee Shapiro and Stephen Wise. And they mentioned you guys actually as having, they like consulted with you about it. I was wondering if you, you could talk about that for a bit. I don't remember much about that. We had a conversation, mm-hmm. um, that was sort of like diving into some of the things we've talked about here. Mm. about the duality of Batman and so on. But I, I, but we didn't go much further with that. I think it was just a conversation. Gotcha. I haven't, I haven't read the script yet. I just have a yeah. copy of it where it has an intro where they talked about it a little bit. And for, forgive me, Ben, I feel like you, maybe you've told me this before and I forgot, but were you, you, you guys were the ones that wrote the, the, the red book stuff and the, and the big scene of Batman's arc being cut out as far as like meeting this huge bat in a cave, or was that Akiva? That was, was that, Joel. That was him. Okay, that was Joel. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Was okay. Joel. A lot. There's there's a lot in the movie. Um, uh, Joel did a very gracious thing that I, I don't, don't know directors ever do. He, he was finishing up um, filming on the last few scenes of *The Client*, which is John Grisham book. He's down mm-hmm. in New Orleans, so he flew us out. Uh, so that, you know, he's directing some scenes, but then we'd go back to his hotel and we would, uh, you know, sit, sit around, you know, lay down on the couch, sort of brainstorm. Uh, we'd throw out ideas to him. He'd throw out ideas to us. He has to 
say, I like that. Oh, definitely do that. No, I don't like that. Let's move on. Um, and then he brought up the editor, the editor, uh, Dennis Ferkler, because uh, he said, you know, these are the two people at the beginning of a movie and at the end of a movie. Who shaped the movie. They shaped and, the they movie. Never, and they never, and they never meet. <laughs> and so he thought it would That's be just cool. And, and that, I think that really paid off for the, uh, for the good of the movie because uh, Dennis was in at the very beginning on sort of what our vision for it and what Joel's vision was. And then at the tail end of it, he's trying to keep it all together and keep it all in harmony. It's as opposed to so many cooks and I want this. No, I want that and fighting. He's trying to keep it all in harmony. Especially that, with so many moving parts. Yeah. yeah. So I think him, him putting putting us all together in the same city and sometimes in the same room, was a really healthy thing. And I wish more filmmakers would do that. Mm-hmm. It does make a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, should happen more. Yeah. Definitely sounds <laughs> exactly. like it should. Uh, it just occurred to me. I think Lee, you mentioned that you were going to get back around to talking about uh, why it didn't necessarily work out with Michael Keaton and Robin Williams. Well, that. Uh, comes down, I think, to money. Ah. Um, <laughs> Enough uh, said. Because, because Michael Keaton had been in now two very successful uh, movies, uh, his agency, um, I don't know if we should say who they are or not, but they uh, they wanted an arm and a leg, and, uh, well, they wanted $15 million for, for Michael and a piece of the gross uh, and merchandising. And the studio didn't want to pay that. Yes. So we started off believing we were writing for Michael Keaton and right. had to switch mid, uh, well, pretty early on. Pretty early on, Joel told us that he was offering it to Val Kilmer and that's who we were now writing for. Right. Mm-hmm. And then the, the same thing same thing with Robin Williams um, is that, well, if uh, – Michael Keaton is getting $15 million and a percentage of the gross and a percentage of the merchandising. Well, then that's what we're asking for our clients too. And so Warner brothers sort of had, had a, a, a moment of truth. Like said, wait a minute. All right. Forget the, the percentage of the gross. We're mm-hmm. spending $30 million on two actors and we're not shooting a frame of film yet. Yeah. yeah. Let's yeah. think about recast. And that's in, you know, <laughs> early nineties, millions of dollars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, we, we know somebody who had worked with Robin and knew Robin was able to talk to him about it. He read the script, wanted to do he it. I mean, it. this is like one of the great moments of my life is that Robin Williams wanted to do something that we wrote uh, mm-hmm. and he <laughs> wanted to do it. And his agency said, don't worry. They have to come to you. There is nobody else in town who does what you do. And if they, if there were, <laughs> we would represent them. And and they made an offer to Jim Carrey that weekend. And Robin oh, found man. about found out about it when he read it in the trades. Oh my god. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. So is, so yeah. we switched gears there too. Yeah. Wow. Well, did you have like a pretty? pretty fleshed out draft at that point like how far were you into before you had to switch gears yeah that the first draft was done at that okay Uh, okay. he'd he'd read the draft he loved it so basically he he felt we captured his voice you know the robin williams stand-up guy and we were like oh (laughs) our careers are done we we have accomplished what you know so 
Yeah. But that was not meant to be. Yes. Oh, man. As I mean, I, I would have loved to have seen, I love Jim Carrey's performance in it. I would have loved to have seen Robin Williams too, especially because as I was showing Andrew in some of the um, original comics, Riddler does kind of, Riddler looks exactly like Robin Williams. And, yeah, and how he's he originally does. Drawn. He does. Like, Damn, that would have been perfect casting. Yeah. Uh, and then and then when it came to uh, Chase Meridian, they had to recast because once they went to Val Kilmer, um, uh, he was younger than Michael, Michael Keaton. They cast mm. Rene Russo as the love interest. And she was just she's just a little older for the, for Val Kilmer, uh, sort of visually. Mm. So what uh, I think is probably very disappointing for her, for her. But Warner Brothers said, "Okay, we're going to ask you just to step aside, but we are promising you, uh, you know, an an A movie with an A script, A cast. Uh, we we're giving you another another uh, big budget movie." They gave her um, um, a, a outbreak. With Dustin Hoffman, which was a hit movie, oh. yeah, oh. but she was originally going to be Chase Murray, and then and she got to be she was replaced, she was yeah. replaced with uh, Nicole Kidman. Gotcha. Cool. Um, I feel like we don't have a whole lot of time left. I just wanted to ask uh, one last thing from me, and then maybe Ben will have one more after sure. that, and that'll yeah. be it. But uh, if you were offered to write Batman today, what would you do differently? Like, what kind of Batman do you? What kind of Batman movie do you want to see these days? Well, you know, now I think we're living in a more complicated world. Yes. Um, we're living in a world that has a lot more ambiguity in it. So I think Batman is a really good hero to explore that. Um, I I mean, we love the Marvel Extended Universe, the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but um, I don't think that those heroes are by and large able to explore some of the psychological depths that Batman has in him. I think Tony Stark does. Right. Batman's dead. <laughs> I think, yeah, yes. yes. <laughs> right. But, but, but I think yes. that, was, that was a character. Yeah. That but most of them that. don't. But most yeah. of them don't. And, and I think that uh, taking Batman not necessarily to sort of the dark place of the Christopher Nolan films, but back into the world of ambiguity um, you know, I, I, because the thing about Batman is that he is dark, but he is also light. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a hard tightrope to walk. I think that most portrayals of Batman choose one side or the other, but walking down the middle would be really interesting in this time, uh, in this era, uh, to, to sort of see, uh, who, how is he dealing with that double pull on his personality? And I think a really interesting question would be to just find a way to explore what happens, you know, the issue of uh, what happens if he does want to be healed. Mm. That's very yeah. true. Wow. And of course the whole concept of Batman forever was, was, was uh, uh, that he doesn't think that he can, uh, keep this going, which is why he needs to, you know, talk to psychiatrists. At one point in the movie, he decides I'm going to pack it in because I don't want Dick Grayson to go down the same uh, rabbit hole that I went down. Mm-hmm. Um, so that tension. I, I uh, also to answer, to answer your, your question, what would I do differently? I, I, I am not a nihilistic writer. I'm sort of. Uh, I'm, 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 I have a very romantic 
almost a Richard Curtis uh, view of, of, of life. So uh, I'm, I'm not afraid of writing dark. I'm fine with writing dark, but there's got to be light. And I think that sometimes uh, these kinds of movies go too far to where it's just all darkness, darkness, darkness. And I think that's an, that can lead to an empty experience for an audience. I think mm -hmm. you need to have a mm -hmm. full meal. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree yeah, with that. Yeah. I think so too. It's funny because my last question was uh, your guys' opinion on the Batman movies that came out afterwards and considering <laughs> the response to Batman versus Superman, I think I already kind of know what your opinion was well, on that lead. Well, they're beautifully crafted. They're beautifully <laughs> crafted. They're a different, you know, look, um, I think one of the strengths of the character of Batman is the massive uh, interpretations that this character allows. I mean, we've, you know, from Bob Kane to the Dark Knight is a huge, huge leap yeah, mm -hmm. from Adam West to Christopher Nolan is an enormous span for one character to cover. And I think it shows um, the depths to be plumbed in this character. So, you know, we looked at all of, say, the Dark Knight movies, and we were able to just sort of, sort of say, well, that is just not our Batman. That is a different Batman. Mm -hmm. But there is room for more than one Batman. In some ways, it's like saying, well, Hamlet's been done. So we really aren't ever going to see anybody else take <laughs> right. on Hamlet. <laughs> um, you know, there are characters that are worthy of being explored from different points of view. Mm -hmm. Now we even have Lego Batman. Yes. Uh, yeah. You know, so so I think there are a lot of uh, points of view to use coming at Batman. And I don't have any issue with other people exploring other facets mm -hmm. or other takes on this character. Mm -hmm. It's not a character we invented um, but we've found the continuing interpretation of this character to continue to be fascinating. Yeah, one of the things when, when we look at a project, um, if we're offered just uh, uh, to come on to something, we ask ourselves, is this a world that we want to live in for, you know, two months, six months, even a year? Mm -hmm. um, and if it's too dark uh, and depressing and nihilistic a world, that's probably not we're not the right writers for it, but there are other writers that are just brilliant at that stuff. And we can admire that. And, mm -hmm. and they're comfortable with that. So, you know, each art artists have different uh, comfort levels of what, of what they're good at. And we, I think we sort of know what's right for us, but that doesn't mean we uh, don't appreciate uh, people who are a different sensibility than us. We mm -hmm. do. I was telling Ben earlier in one of the previous episodes that I feel like now more than ever there's an acceptance for all kinds of Batman. Like it felt like in the '90s that people only wanted people kept referring back want, to Burton. They want Frank Miller type and Frank yeah. Miller type. Right. And but now it's like you have like Batman '66 comics doing well. The animate Batman '66 animation. It's a show about Alfred. <laughs> like, it's a show about Alfred. You know, like you people accept all kinds of Batman now, and I think that's really cool. You know. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's a good note to end on. All right. Well, thanks for coming on, guys. Thank this has you been so awesome. much. Oh, Thank you for talking pleasure. to us. Our pleasure. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, I guess that's it. I think All that's right. it. So, okay. yeah. Okay. Thanks, guys. Thank, Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye.
so we just talked to Lee and Janice got Bachelor screenwriters of Batman Forever, and I think uh, we both learned a lot in terms of... I mean, some of it was stuff I already covered, and this is kind of just me verifying <laughs> for the sake of some saying I'm not pulling that, shit on my ass. Some of that's new trivia, though, isn't it? Don't you think? Uh, Which part? Uh, oh, well, I didn't know about the, the, the giant penny thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I definitely didn't know about we that. We uncovered some uh, little trinkets there, I think. Yes. With that stuff. Uh, but yeah, uh, it was incredible, man. I mean, like I said in the beginning, this this was a movie that I saw, of course, and when I was a kid. And to go from that kid that's all in the theater to talking to the screenwriters now, I mean, everybody in LA is like, whatever. Like maybe Ben's like, <laughs> I feel like, yeah, whatever. But like, I don't know, man. Like if if you're listening to this and you're not from LA, then you kind of know the kind of like mystical pedestal mm-hmm. that. Hollywood is put on and it's some land that we can never really visit and uh, but I visited it today a little bit more I mean mm. I don't know I'm talking to my ass a little <laughs> bit, but but uh, you know something in that direction anyway uh, catch us out on patreon p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash superhouse podcast um, I'm Thunderwolf Drew on uh, Instagram and Twitter superhouse is on all the social media anything that you want we're there if we're not there uh, message us at superhousepodcast at gmail.com uh, and uh, Ben is uh, Ben Juan Ryder at Instagram and this concludes our four part series <laughs> on Batman Forever who knew it was going to take this long <laughs> I can't believe it uh, but <laughs> Ben what's next man next we dive into more rubber dimples and neon lights and Joel Schumacher <laughs> with a viewing and revisit Oh, Batman and Robin. Probably uh, going to just be a one-parter on that one. We will see. <laughs> Does it live up to the leg- reputation, or is there something redeeming about it? We have not seen this movie since we were kids. So, how will it look now after seeing it? Uh, there is no deep dive episode. Unfortunately, Batman Forever is probably the last one that I will have to do a deep dive into the scripts, the previous scripts of it. However, as hinted in this episode, that doesn't mean we'll be done covering scripts or material of Batman that hasn't been made. I might be doing a deep dive into what could have been the sequel to Batman and Robin. That's incredible. I'm really looking forward to that one, obviously. Probably more than the movie. More than the movie. <laughs> yeah, as usual, we look forward to talking about movies more than watching the I'll movie. I'll tell you right now, man, when, when we were going, when I was go, uh, run, I ran to the theater from my car when I was a kid. Ran. I could not wait to see Batman and Robin. <laughs> really? Yes. Yes. I remember this because some other kid screamed at me, run, Forrest, run. <laughs> and it was my first time ever hearing somebody say that in jest. Wow. Okay. Because <laughs> it, it was so, it was like, what, 97 or something? 90, 1997, yeah. So I was in seventh grade, I think, or summer of, so I was going to be entering seventh grade. And uh, so, yeah, that gives you my age. But um, I was like, man, this guy's saying run, Forrest, run. What? Why is he saying that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah, I was excited to see the movie and then, of course, let down. Um, anyway, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess we'll uh, get into that later. Uh, I, I kind of predict that I'll be more accepting of it I think so, now. too. I think we will be... It'll be interesting to see, is Clooney actually the worst Batman or does he just get a bad rap because of the movie he's surrounding with? He's surrounded by. I, I want to say with adult eyes, for sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we can also get to see the full, because I know, like, we talked about, like, Schumacher's Batman versus Burton, and we already are seeing, like, okay, there's a better focus on the Bruce Wayne character. Yeah. Does that continue with this one? Right. Yeah, exactly. I already have yeah. some ideas based I, I on what wonder. I remember. Yeah. 
If I just feel like if I go in just thinking this is Adam West Batman reimagined for the nineties, mm-hmm. which it's pretty much what it is. Yeah, I feel like absolutely. if you if you can accept Adam West Batman, then why can't you accept this? You know what I'm saying? So yeah. just trying to have an open mind about these movies that are generally shit on. <laughs> right. So, so uh, I mean you don't know these writers, do you? Akiva Goldsman. Oh yeah, <laughs> it was it just him on this one. <laughs> it was just him on this one. Oh, so that's uh all right. <laughs> I have less to read this time. Okay. Because Akiva Goldsman was the one I'm sold. This is the only Batman movie of the '90s Batman movies where the original Vision sounds like it went or directly from original Vision to the stage or to the screen. And that's a bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, let's see what we think. Maybe we should have had some movie. studio interference. Maybe, yeah, that's maybe should have been when there was studio <laughs> interference. Not any of this previous stuff, because we uh, got some shit. of the best material cut from the previous versions. And this one, I don't even know what was... I mean, there there is a copy of the Batman and Robin script online. However, I don't think there's anything different about it based off of what I've seen of it. So it's probably... We are not going to... As again, we're not going to do a deep dive into what could have been, but deep dive into what could have followed. Sounds great. Stay tuned. Signing off. <laughs>